Excellent. You may be seated. Good morning. Hey, my shirt's not tucked in, so I'm not yelling at anybody today. Okay? Just everybody, just relax, okay? Hey, happy Pentecost Sunday. We are observing today Pentecost Sunday. Did you guys even know that it was Pentecost Sunday today? Okay, a couple of us knew, a couple of us didn't. That's awesome. Here, I want to read something for you. This is not in my notes. Clearly, it's on my phone here. Ezekiel 36 says, For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. Amen? I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Ezekiel goes on to talk about how the Israelites will then come into their land. When that happened, when they exited the Babylonian exile, they came back to their land. They rebuilt the temple, and when they dedicated the temple, the Spirit of God did not fall. And the people wept. Because in Solomon's day, when they dedicated the temple, the Shekinah glory filled the temple. God's presence was there. And so the people weep and they're looking at prophecies like what Ezekiel and Isaiah and Zechariah and the others are talking about and it is not yet fulfilled. Then we get to Acts chapter 2. Let me pull it up. Acts chapter 2. They're sitting together in the room. They're doing the only thing they know what to do and they're praying. They've received instruction from Jesus that you will wait because my spirit will come. Peter gets up and he declares, after the spirit has rushed in like a mighty wind, fire rests upon each of the person's heads, signifying that now God's presence isn't in a temple, it's in you and in I. Now we are many temples. The presence of God is not in one localized spot in Jerusalem in a physical building. It is now in you and in I. And when God's presence is within us, something powerful begins to happen. We have exactly what the songs we were just singing says, living hope. Because God lives now within us. And Peter, in his famous sermon calls out the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. Pentecost is the realization of what Ezekiel and the other prophets foresaw. Ezekiel has another vision. I was listening to the song Rattle this morning. You guys know the song Rattle? Come on now. From Elevation Worship, y'all don't know the song Rattle? Okay, this is some of your homework this week. You need to go and listen to the song Rattle. It's a song about the vision that Ezekiel receives in uh, Ezekiel chapter 37, where there's the valley of dry bones. There's bones all over. And can anything be more dead than a bone? No, that's kind of the point. The Spirit of God begins to speak to Ezekiel and, and say, says to Ezekiel, can, can these bones be alive? And Ezekiel's like, I don't know. You, you have to tell me, God. <laughs> I love that answer. Uh, you, I don't know. You have to tell me. And so then God begins to say, prophesy to the bones that they will 
live. So Ezekiel begins to prophesy, and a great wind rushes in. And the bones begin to rattle, hence the name of that song that you need to go listen to. Sheesh, I don't know how you don't know that song. Okay, so the bones begin to rattle, they begin to rise up, and then flesh begins to cover the bones. And then the sinews of the flesh begin to uh, connect to one another, and skin begins to envelop the flesh and the sinews, and the bodies are alive, but they have no breath in them. There's a vast army that is alive, but they're not fully alive yet. Pentecost, I believe, is the fulfillment of what Ezekiel then says next. The Spirit of God then breathed into them. Exactly what we see in Genesis 1, when God formed man, formed woman, and breathed into them his very Spirit, animating them, giving them life giving them his own life. Pentecost then stands as the fulfillment of what Ezekiel and the other prophets foresaw, that God's presence will live within us and among us. It is the reversal of the curse of Genesis chapter 11, where Babel wanted to become empire on earth. We will all speak the same language and be all together on this thing opposed to God. Pentecost says, it doesn't matter what language you speak, God speaks to you. It doesn't matter what ethnicity you're from, what person you are, God can be with you and will be in you if you come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Pentecost is an important day, and it was the spark of the renewal that began to go viral, which became a revival on that day from 120 to 3,000, and the name of Christ went out. Pentecost is vital for us to remember and to understand that what the prophets foresaw, God's spirit coming in us, giving us a new heart and a new spirit to follow his decrees and to become more like him was fulfilled in Jesus and on this wonderful day that we commemorate. Amen? Let's get to the sermon. You are an iceberg. I said it earlier uh, in the first sermon, you are an iceberg. Icebergs are large chunks of ice that float on the ocean's surface. While many large icebergs are impressive from the deck of a boat, it's only when you put on the protective diving gear, submerge yourself in the frigid waters, and look deeper that you'll really be impressed. You see, what's visible on the water's surface is only about 10% of the whole iceberg. There's still another 90% of the whole beneath the surface. Now, you are the same way. Your exterior persona is only about 10% of you. The other 90% lives beneath the surface. The you that most others will see is only the carefully crafted surface of you. The other 90% of you is happening in your inner life. Your inner life is made up of your inner dialogue, your emotions and feelings, your reactions and your values and beliefs. Your surface existence is merely the result of what's occurring in your inner life, or it is the denial and the suppression of your inner life. Our culture speaks about feelings and emotions with passion and authority that really confuses the reality. Our culture tells us that our feelings are supreme, your emotions are true, and you must follow your heart to find yourself. 
the reality is that our culture can only handle the 10% that floats above the surface. The inner life suffers from real examination because there is no standard in our culture to measure against because your expression and your expression and your expression are all equally valid and true. So there is no definite meaning other than what you create. The endless cycle of creating and recreating ourselves becomes exhausting to the point that we become shut off to our inner lives and instead distract ourselves from what's really going on with new activity and the five things that I talked about last week when I said that your life is a system. There are things that we input from our culture, some of them being consumerism, materialism, hedonism, which is uh, self-indulgence, individualism, and deconstruction. These All of these things are what we fill our lives with, trying to gain more freedom and more autonomy, more self-expression, more self-definition, so that we will feel whole. The problem is that our culture speaks out of both sides of its mouth. On the one side, your feelings and emotions are your authority. And on the other side, you're never really encouraged to take a look inward with any true gaze because something new and shiny is always presented to distract you. This distracted life then lives in a pernicious tension that is very hard to break out of. So instead, we live at just the tip of the iceberg, strategically and subconsciously constructing our days to avoid looking beneath the surface. Into this climate the church has a great opportunity to reclaim the space of inner life for Jesus. But if you've been in church for a while, I've got some bad news. You know this to be true, that church has unfortunately shied away from inner examination for the sake of doctrinal accuracy and surface-level external actions. Are you wearing a suit? What length is your hair? Do you have a skirt on? Are you uh, watching rated R movies? (gasps) You're doing all of them? Oh my goodness. That's what the church has focused on, unfortunately. Now, doctrinal accuracy is very important, absolutely, but not to the exclusion of looking inward. See, the rhetoric of personal growth has been great. It's been right. But the implicit understanding is that you must be so heavenly-minded that your emotions and feelings don't really need the gaze of the Father because they're dirty and gross. And you can understand this a little bit. If you've been in church for a while or you've read your Bible at all, you'll see things like what the prophet Jeremiah says in the Old Testament, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? In the New Testament, Jesus calls out the ways, particularly in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, but really all throughout his teaching, he points out the ways that our inward sin lead to our external action. Paul tells us that we should capture every thought and submit it to Christ. We can read these verses and then overreact to them, creating a general perception that our emotions and feelings are the dirty part of us that must be expelled so that we can become more like Jesus. So instead of inner examination, the church has all too often opted for inner extermination. The unspoken understanding is that our emotions are always evil and our feelings are always wrong. Therefore, we must suppress them and divide our lives. I think our intentions are good. We want to be holy. We want to live for God, but our attempts at holiness through suppression of our emotions leads us to a compartmentalized life where we take parts of ourselves and say, I will not access that, nor will you, God. 
But to follow Jesus in the world requires us to embrace a fully human life. Alive to the dimensions of our inner worlds that are often repressed, ignored, and explained away with Bible verses and in the name of respectability. You shan't not feel that way. Because if you do, then you're an emotional person and your emotions are taking over. And now because you're emotional, you can't be like Jesus. My favorite verse in Bible drill. Some of y'all already caught it. Jesus wept. I got a gold star that day. That was, an, that was an easy one to remember. Interior examination must become then a way of life that considers the realities of our inner world for the sake of our own flourishing and the call to love others well. The practice of interior examination is another resistance practice to our culture. It's an opportunity for us to resist our culture of noise and distraction and the scripts that they would give us, the ways that we're supposed to be according to them, for the sake of an integrated life in trust and relationship with God's directing. Now, the book of Psalms is a wonderful collection of prayers to God. These prayers cover the spectrum of human emotion. Rich Velota says, you'll see words of grief, of anger and rage, of fear and anxiety. Did you know that's in your Bible? And of joy, hope, and worship. We must remember that God wanted us to have these words. God wanted you to have the words of Psalms. These words aren't just for singing and for reading one time a year. They are for giving expression to what's happening inside of us. It's as if God is giving you permission to feel what you feel, in the words of Olaf. Maybe Christoph, I don't remember. Maybe Sven, actually, now that I'm thinking about it. Wow. I think it was Sven that says, feel what you feel, those feelings are real. Anyways... It's as if God is giving us permission through David and the other psalmist to feel what we feel, to express those feelings to God, and ultimately to submit those in trust and in relationship to what God is all about. In Psalm, uh, in Psalm uh, 139, David gives us a beautiful picture of a deeply rooted life in interior examination. Psalm 139, verses 1 through 3 say this, You have searched me, Lord, and you what? Know me. You know when I sit and you know when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. David reminds us of a great truth that God knows us. He knows us so well that he knows our actions, our intentions, and our thoughts better than we do. He continues in verses eight, 7 through 8, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. See, David knows something about God. He knows that he is fully present to us. Whether our thoughts are ascending toward God or we are flourishing in the depths of the most hellish circumstances that we can face, he is there fully present to us. David continues in verses 13 through 14. For you created my inmost being, my inmost being, 
the 90% of you. That's what David was saying. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and you are wonderful. You. All of you. You in the sound booth. Especially the nursery elementary people. Amen? They're double wonderful. Yeah, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. David continues, your works are wonderful. I know that full well. We see God's creative love as he forms and shapes us into his masterpieces of creation. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. This entire psalm up to this point is about God's deep knowledge of all of humanity, David in particular, but all of humanity. But then something really interesting happens at the end of the passage in verses 23 through 24. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. David is keenly aware that God knows everything about David. God knows everything about us. But what David is asking for in these verses is for God to show me me. David doesn't fully understand or know himself. Haven't you woken up in the morning and been mad? And did you know why? You just you just crabby that day, and you're just kind of mad, and you don't even you don't even know. You just feel that way. Maybe you didn't sleep well. Maybe you had a bad dream where your spouse did so and so. You know what I'm saying? And now all of a sudden it's your spouse's fault that you had a dream about that. Anyways, do you get what I'm talking about? Right? All of that happens, and you wake up angry, and you don't even know why. We know this to be true about ourselves that we don't fully even comprehend what what we're about sometimes. It's wild. And so David is asking for God to show me, me. As much as we need to be praying for God to show us your face, we want to know more of you, reveal yourself to us. We also need to be praying along with David, show me, me. Rich Velotis, in a book I just can't more highly recommend, you need to go and buy The Deeply Formed Life. It's a fantastic book. He says this, One of the most important theological statements of self-awareness and examination comes from John Calvin. He wrote, The knowledge of God and that of ourselves are connected. Without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. Without knowledge of God, there is no knowledge of self. Velotus will continue, the knowledge of self he speaks of is not identical with 21st century psychotherapeutic sensibilities. Calvin had in mind a knowledge of our creatureliness, of our condition of sin. When we know we are caught in sin, the knowledge of God and our need for salvation clarify the connection. Once I recognize my own sin, now I can become aware of God. And once I become aware of God, I become more aware of my sin. Lotus continues, I would add, however, that sin is not limited to morality and salvation as it's typically understood. Sin is a principle of captivity to a power that permeates and contaminates our human reality. Sin is the word Christians use to name not simply our failed acts, but also our inner and outer captivity. If we embrace a fuller understanding of the nature of sin, knowledge of self extends beyond our obvious acts of transgression 
or our insufficiency to save ourselves. It also extends to the limits and failure of living lives marked by wholeness. God doesn't want you to just not sin anymore. He wants you to be whole. That's why he gave you his spirit. He wants to fill you up. God in Christ takes on our sin that we may live forgiven, free, and whole lives. This wholeness extends to every aspect of our lives, including our interior worlds. So interior examination is an ongoing practice of submitting ourselves to God for the purpose of being more present to him. It then gives us actionable steps in each situation and relationship of life as we move out of God, not out of God's presence, but you understand, out from the moments where we've been in God's presence to then go live our lives. The challenge will be how you feel about what I'm talking about right now. We're trained to think that looking inward is self-absorption. While this can be true, certainly, carefully looking inward does not have to become navel-gazing. The goal of self-examination is actually freedom. Freedom from destructive thought patterns, from inner messages and ways that we wrongly perceive the things around us. Author Andreas Ebert says, many avoid the path of self-knowledge because they are afraid of being swallowed up in their own abysses. Did you know that abyss has a plural? Anyways. But Christians have confidence that Christ has lived through all the abysses of human life and that he goes with us if we dare to engage in sincere confrontation with ourselves. Because God loves us unconditionally along with our dark sides. We don't need to dodge ourselves any longer. In the light of this love that God has for us, the pain of self-knowledge can be at the same time the beginning of our healing. Isn't that beautiful? The practices of interior examination. Now, the process of interior examination is to recognize the ways that we are compartmentalized. Compartmentalization is the splitting of oneself. It is the disconnecting of areas of one's life from God and from oneself. This leads to a divided and inauthentic life. To present ourselves as put together whole and holy, we ignore and suppress aspects of our lives. We try to hold it all together through sheer force and with a gritted smile. All the while, God offers us rest and the promise that he will hold us all together. You often think of yourselves as one whole person. And you are. That's absolutely true. But also the reality is that your whole self is made up of parts. Remember that you are a system. This is what we talked about last week. You're a system, and a system has many parts working together to achieve something. You have a playful side, a competitive side, a cautious side, a ooh, disgusted side, right? You, and I could just keep going on what different sides there are of you, and all of these sides together make up who you are. See, the root work of interior examination involves acknowledging all of our part selves, exposing them to God's love, and letting him weave them into the new person that he is making. 
Therefore, put off your old selves and put on Christ. This is what we read in our New Testaments. Now, this practice will be twofold. The first happens inwardly as you name your part selves, past trauma, patterns, and scripts. The first part also includes looking at our emotions and feelings, anxieties, and reactions. This all happens within our inner dialogue and in prayer with God. That's the first part. The second part of this practice happens corporately as you speak with others about what's going on in you to gain perspective, to gain accountability, and, if needed, correction. This twofold process will help to integrate us under God's loving gaze and with the help of the Spirit, and it will begin to transform us in ways that you can't understand. Because again, 10%, 90%. If I can integrate the two parts, what could God do? Now, the things I'm about to talk about, they're sensitive. And I want to be very sensitive in what I say today. Please understand my intent Please understand what I'm going to say, okay? Now, there's no right place to start on this order that I'm about to give you. So don't, like, say, well, he said this is number one, so this is what I can do for... I'm not saying that. So just do, do whatever feels most comfortable, what you feel like the Spirit is leading you to do. Um, what I'm about to address would take a year of sermons, a year of counseling, and a year of processing through, and more, actually, So I'm going to give just the very briefest possible explanation of what we should be thinking about, what we should be aware of as we begin to think about our inner lives. Now, there are differing levels of severity to each of the things that I'm going to address today. For some, the severity of the scarring of our inner lives requires professional attention. Not because you're broken. Not because you're broken. You are fearfully and wonderfully made but because you and likely the people around you don't have the proper tools to lead you to effective relief and to healing. For others, it may not require professional attention, but merely a loving group of people to help process. Now, with that said, though, I wish everybody in this room would go to counseling. I just, I I, I do. I wish every one of us in here would go to counseling, and we as Christians need to remove the stigma of counseling. It's not bad. It's not bad. Somebody say amen? Now, if you view yourself as a well-adjusted person, I'm going to caution you this morning. Because you're only as well-adjusted as the person you're comparing yourself to. What that means is that you might be more fine in your view than who you're comparing yourself to, but that does not mean that you've attained relief and the process of healing as much as God would like to see in your own life. If you can walk into every situation and say, I acted just like Jesus just now, then you don't need to go to counseling and you don't need to deal with your inner life. But if you can't go into every situation and walk out and go, man, Jesus was just expressed through me. Booyah then you need counseling. Okay? You do. It's good for you. It's another tool in our tool belts to help us grow in our inner lives. So if you can, not everybody can. This is why we have in our church discipleship groups. This is why we put such an emphasis on relationship in this church because some of us can't afford or have the ability to go to counseling. And not that your disciple leader is your counselor, 
but they can help you along the process as much as they're able. You understand? So they, they can't fix you necessarily, and you can't fix you necessarily. It would be good for you to go to counseling if you can, but if you can't, seek the people around you to help this process, begin this process of healing and relief. So let's talk the practicals I'm about to get into. There are external impacts in your life. The first one I want to talk about is trauma. Trauma is not an objective experience. Trauma cannot become a comparison game because it's based upon individuals and not definitions. So what's traumatic to one person may not be traumatic to another. Okay? So don't point at someone else's thing that they're going through and the ways that they've experienced that and go, really? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That, that's not loving people the way that God would. So it's not an objective experience. Now, with that said, I'm going to try to give a very loose and free definition just to understand what it is. Not pinning it down, though. Trauma is the things that happen to us that shouldn't have. And it's the things that don't happen to us that could have. It can be devastating, like physical, sexual, or mental abuse. It can also be devastating, like loss, just to name a few things. It can... Um, uh, oh, sorry, yeah, yeah. It can also be things that aren't devastating like that necessarily, but it can also be things like child psychologist talks about nothing happening when something might profitably have happened, where there are things that didn't happen that could have blessed us along the way. So maybe not a major event, but a small accumulation of things that then build up to uh, become a, an absence or a void in our lives. The, one of the examples that the author gave me as I was reading through this was that you can grow up in a home where it's loving and it's warm and it's accepting and your parents are awesome, but they're still unavailable. And over a series of time, that unavailability can then be passed on to us and we can have some trauma, again, trauma, within that, where we grew up in a non-existent emotional home where it was loving and it was accepting, but there was no conversation or relationship or dialogue or profitable things happening that blessed us. Trauma, as Robert Storolo explains, is when emotional or mental or physical pain cannot find a relational home in which it can be held. In other words, the pain we experience has a way of metastasizing, damaging the rest of our emotional worlds. So the process of uncovering trauma is the process of naming the places in your life where emotional, physical, or mental pain have no place to go. We can't make sense of them. They just live within us. And then because they live within us, we begin to act out in certain ways because of the trauma that's within our bodies. See, trauma lingers. It has no relational home to make sense of. So here's some questions we can begin to ask ourselves to start identifying some trauma. Are you avoiding certain people? Are there certain situations and scenarios that trigger anxiety or depression in you? Do you ever find yourself shut off to others because of something that's going on around you that is triggering to you? These will aid you in identifying some lingering things that exist in your heart and in your mind and in your body whether severe or not, that can help in the naming and assigning of responsibility to the correct persons. This will get us out of the illusions that trauma can create. 
Listen, I'm, I did not just say that your trauma is an illusion. Mm-mm. I did not say that. I said, though, that sometimes trauma can produce within us illusions that do not align with the scripts of the gospel. The goal is to relate to our present pain in ways that reframe how we've internalized our experiences. Again, we could talk about this for, we could just, we wouldn't stop because all of us have trauma in our lives. None of us lived in perfect homes. None of us lived in perfect situations. None of us lived perfect lives personally. So we all have trauma. So the beginning of identifying them and becoming aware of what, has exper- what we've experienced in our lives is one of the big steps towards interior examination. The next thing that is an external impact is scripts. Scripts are the messages we receive, the roles we are given, and the ways we believe we must live that have been consciously handed to us or subconsciously interpreted by us. Scripts can be related to a big moment in our history or an accumulation of little moments. Scripts are the ways that I tell myself I have to be for things to be right in my world. They can include, I have to hold everything together. I have to provide for the family. I have to make lots of money to be happy. I cannot fail at what I try. I cannot look like a failure to others. I don't need anyone's help in my life. I will never take help from others, definitely not alone. And on and on the list could go. Examining what we're most afraid of losing and what we're most thrilled to gain will tell us a lot about which script we're living into. Asking ourselves tough questions about what I believe I have to be or do in order for my world to be right will help us to gain insight into whether or not our scripts line up with the script of the gospel. Just to use an example from this list, I have to hold everything together. Nothing happens unless I'm doing it. Jesus says, breathe, rest. I hold it all together. The gospel says that you don't have to perform for God. He loves you just as you are. Do you see how those scripts are differing from one another? So we have to line them up with the gospel and see if what we are most Uh, worried to lose or most thrilled to gain, lines up with what Jesus is all about. Another external impact is patterns. Patterns are the repeated behaviors, practices, habits, or ways of thinking that extend from one generation to the next. Again, author and pastor Rich Velotis says, Jesus might live in your heart, but grandma lives in your bones. (laughs) I love that. Isn't that so good? What that means is that we all have inherited positive and negative legacies in our lives. And identifying the patterns of our families will situate us in reality. It will give explanation as to who, what, when, where, and why I am who I am. So the battle we face is not new, I promise you. So these legacies could be things like hard work, prioritizing of family time, healthy money management, a love of art, a love of music, a love of travel. They could be wonderful things like that. They could also be things like conflict avoidance, alcoholism, inability to have a committed relationship. It could go on and on. 
whether negative or positive, identifying the patterns that we have been given, enable us to see ourselves from an outside angle and then position ourselves to resist, change, or enhance the ways we currently live. Knowing your family history is really important. So building relationships with your family where it's healthy and where it's safe is good to understand more of yourself and how you respond to your own life. I don't know your family history. I, I, I grew up in a wonderful family, a wonderful family. A lot of dysfunction, like everybody's family, but a wonderful family all the less, nonetheless. So when I, when I think about this patterns idea, I can identify the good things that my parents did and carry those into my own parenting. And I can also identify the negative things that they passed on to me, the patterns that I now live into, and try to resist them and change them and try to pass on as much good as I can to my children. Here's the reality. Am I going to be perfect at that? Where's Rachel? I didn't hear you say no. (laughs) I'm not going to be perfect at that. Neither will you be. This is why we must pray for our children. We must pray for our children because you can't be perfect enough for them. I know that's tough. You can't be perfect enough for them. You can be wonderful, great parents for them. And by God's grace and power above the Spirit, he will enable you to do that. But we need a lot of prayer because we will pass on, as parents, we will pass on scripts and patterns to them that they'll then have to deal with and work through. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? So we need to pray for ourselves, we need to pray for our kids, that what we're giving to our children is as much positive as we possibly can. You know one of the best things that you can tell your kids? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have yelled at you. Daddy was really anxious, and I I don't even know what was wrong with me. I'm sorry I yelled. That was wrong of me. What a humbling experience to apologize to a three-year-old who doesn't even know what anxiety is. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But it's good for me, and it's also good for her. The next thing is anxiety. There are two types of anxiety. There's acute and chronic. Acute anxiety is situational and time-based. It is a momentary loss of peace that can lead to a lapse in self-composure and poise. Then there's chronic anxiety, which is not specific to a threat. Any issue, topic, or circumstance can provoke an anxious response. Chronic anxiety clouds understanding, leaving little capacity for individuals to step out of their experience, to observe their own emotionality, reflect on what is happening, make choices based on principles, and best uh, 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 be present to manage their current tasks. What God is inviting us into is a deepening relationship of peace and trust and wholeness with him. When we examine our anxiety, we can expose the power and grip it has in our lives and on our lives in place of God's presence. So we must ask ourselves some simple questions. Who or what is making me anxious? And has anybody ever asked that question while they're anxious? So before you say, that's a dumb question. Have you ever asked yourself, Objectively, who or what is making me anxious right now? Then we have to identify the speci- uh, with specificity the person or persons or the thing or things that is causing the fear and worry to create a physical and emotive response within me. Ask yourself whether or not this information that you're processing is true or comes directly from the enemy. 
If you're struggling to process and identify these emotions and feelings, seek out a trusted voice like a disciple maker, a spiritual mentor, or whoever can help gain perspective, professional or not. Another great step would be to write out the anxieties you're experiencing. Which again, when you're anxious, you just, you're not thinking about this. This isn't present in your brains. But again, this is one of the ways that we can make ourselves more aware of our anxieties. So another great step would be to write them out. Just identify them. Don't try to fix them. Because when you write out the ways that this situation or person is affecting you right now, it will help you better approach that person and those situations in the future. Adding this perspective enhances your ability to perceive correctly and gives you greater distance to evaluate and manage the next moments. Listen, nothing I'm about to tell you happens overnight. Nothing, okay, I asked the question of the youth the other night. I said, what does a silver bullet do? And they said, they said, it kills a werewolf. I was like, you're absolutely right. Um, you're absolutely right. It, it, it does. It produces an immediate solution. That's what I was trying to aim for, but, you know, how did they know that? So anyways, it, that's what it does. It kills a werewolf. It produces an instant resolution and an instant solution. You sitting down one time to write out your anxieties will not produce an instant solution, particularly if you're a person who suffers from chronic anxiety. It will be a process of awareness and thinking through and talking about and dealing with. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? This is not a solution that I'm giving you uh, in, in, in terms of it will be fixed. It, it doesn't work like that. It takes a lot of inner work to develop skills of management to deal with some of these things to produce relief and effective healing. Next is emotions and feelings. Emotions and feelings are two different things. Did you know that? I heard that this, this blew my mind. Alice Miller says this, emotion is a more or less unconscious, but at the same time, vitally important physical response to internal or external events. By contrast, the word feeling denotes a conscious perception of an emotion. The processing of our feelings then becomes the key because your emotions are just going to happen. You understand? Our emotions will just happen. But our feelings, the ways we perceive our emotions, need to come under subjection to Scripture. And yes, we can control our emotions externally, but the controlling of our emotions is merely surface work. Applying the truth of God's word into our feelings lets us see whether we are moving toward God or away from him in moments because what we perceive will tell us whether or not we line up with how, the way God would perceive or see things. So your emotions are different than your feelings. They're connected, but they're different. Emotions happen. Feelings are the ways that you perceive them. Psalms, again, David multiple times writes awful stuff about his life. I mean, it's horrible. Everything's black. The enemies are all out to get me. And at the end, he's like, but praise God who is my hope. You know what I'm saying? There's moments where we see this in Scripture where David is allowed to feel his emotions, but then he subjects those emotions to his perceptions. And his perceptions, he understands, need to line up with what Jesus is all about. 
So emotions and feelings. When we're processing our feelings, we need to ask ourselves some simple questions. These questions will seem simplistic, yet they are very hard to answer. What are you mad about? When Rachel asked me that question, you know what my response is? Nothing. I'm not mad at nothing. Yeah. Uh, the smartest, most capable people in your world have a hard time answering these simplistic questions, especially when you're in the throes of your emotions. It's especially hard to be conscious and mindful of what you're experiencing and feeling in order to subject those to Christ. So what are you mad about? What are you sad about? What are you anxious about? What are you glad about? That's it. Four questions. Working through our feelings with our minds as well as our hearts will help us integrate, allowing God's word to then speak into our perception of the situation. It will then grant us even more insight and direction for the next moments. Finally, reactions. If actions speak louder than words, your reactions speak loudest of all. A reaction is an unthinking response to a stimulus. When we pay attention to our reactions, we're getting a, per, a picture directly into our hearts and minds. The ways that we respond to people in situations tells us what's really going on in the 90% of us. Now, you cannot do the work of interior examination at the moment of a reaction. It will have to occur afterwards. Which again, how many of us look back at our reactions and go, you know what, was I loving like Christ there? Most of us just feel justified, like, yeah, I got him. We can't do the work of interior examination at the moment of reaction. So it will have to go after things occur and happen. We must think through some questions. What happened? What am I feeling? What is the story I'm telling myself? What does the gospel say? And what counter-instinctual action is necessary? The author that I was reading said that he posted something out for um, some people to read. It was a prayer guide that he was really excited about. He received then an email from uh, a, a woman who he highly respects. She's a great theologian, and, and, and he, he values her voice. As he gets the email and begins to read it, thinking she's going to praise him, she begins to give him some gentle correction. He closes his computer. He reacted. So he began to ask himself, what happened? What happened was he received an email from someone he highly respects. What is, uh, what, what is he feeling? He wrote down, I'm feeling deflated. I'm feeling angry. I'm feeling flustered. Mostly I feel inadequate. What is the story that I'm telling myself that I have to get it right the first time? What does the gospel say? That you don't have to get it right the first time. That you need a community of believers around you to help correct your actions and your thoughts. Then he wrote down, what is the counter-instinctual action that is necessary to tell my wife about this situation? Because again, he wants to look like he gets it all right the first time. He wants to look awesome. He wants to look like he has it all together. And so his counter-instinctual action that was necessary was to then go tell his wife this list that he just walked through. That's interior examination, y'all. That's what it looks like to go with Christ into our inner lives and examine what we're all about.
These questions will target the emotions and feelings from a reaction, place them under the truth of Christ, and walk us then into practical transformation. So by examining our reactions, we have moments with God in prayer and time in his word, internalizing his truth into our hearts on a very deep level that will then produce new reactions as a result of the Spirit's transforming work in our hearts and lives. Now, again, that was as just for time's sake, that's as quickly as I could possibly go. Each of these topics needs much more work and much more attention and much more process. None of what I said was a solution, but just the beginning of awareness, just the beginning of thinking. Hopefully for some, changing the way you think about your inner life and interior examination. Now, you have to remember that our culture forms us into a default mode. When you get your phone, it's in default mode, and you have to go then and change the settings that you want it to be at. Our culture forms us at a shallow level into a default mode. Now, you might be saying, well, my default mode is sin, not what my culture says about me. Absolutely, and your culture is full of sin. Uh-huh. So, yes, yes, you're both. You are, yes, your default mode is sin, but also your default mode is what your culture hands to you. So the goals of interior examination is to resist our default mode of living. We must resist this and dive under the surface to assess the rest of the 90% of ourselves, but not for the purpose of simple personal development. No, we want to be transformed into the image of Christ. So self-examination is such an opportunity for us to live out the words of Jesus. Matthew 12, verses 33 and 35. Make a tree good, and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. Verse 35. A good man brings, th- uh, brings good things out of the good things stored up in him. An evil man brings evil things out of the evil that is stored up in him. Paul similarly proclaims in Romans 12, 1 and 2. I love this verse. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not, what? Conform. Do not be shaped by your culture to be the default mode of living, but be transformed by the renewing of your inner lives, your mind. That renewing occurs when we peer inward with Christ for the purpose of our root work. We want our lives to be shaped, to be defined, and to be identified with Jesus Christ. So we walk with Christ into our inward being in order to be renewed. Colossians 3.9b through 10 says, Since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the what? Which is being what? Renewed in the knowledge, in, uh, sorry, in knowledge in the image of its creator. This is what we are to do. We're supposed to put off our old self through the process of interior examination and put on Christ. We want to be transformed into his image. You are an iceberg. Once you've begun to integrate the surface and the depth through the practices of interior examination, you will become more present to your world, more present to God, more present to yourself. And here's the best part. The world needs your presence. You know why? 
because they need the God who indwells you. They need your emotional health to help carry their burdens. They need your perspective. They need your truth. They need your unhurried and unanxious life to show them what life could look like. God will equip and guide you as you do the inward process, this inward process with yourself, and then in your community as you seek further wholeness. I want you to once again imagine a church filled with emotionally healthy disciples, armed with self-awareness, deep relationships, and greater victory over their sin. Imagine that. Imagine your life changed and charged by God's presence in every part of you. Imagine the depth of life that is fully seen and fully known by God. Now God sees it all, right? What I mean is a life that you allow God to fully see and know. Because in that life you will be fully submitted, fully in relationship and fully trusting in him. And that will produce rest and contentedness in God. That's the renewal that God wants for you. That's the renewal to be found in these practices of interior examination. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you've made us fearfully and wonderfully. You've made us carefully with intention and with purpose and with regard. You love us, you care for us, and you know us in the inner being. And because you know us, help us to show us ourselves. Show me, me. I want to know who I am more fully so I can submit myself more fully to you. And I pray the same for those that are in the room today. Spirit, push on our hearts. Push us towards renewal. We will be renewed as we begin to Um, recognize the areas of our lives that we've compartmentalized and closed ourselves off to you and instead help us to integrate ourselves, calling out the areas, the parts, the, the, the ways in our lives that we have shut you out and shut ourselves off and instead bring those to the surface and begin the work, the process of healing and relief. Help us to know when we should seek professional attention and help us to know when we should seek the loving counsel of those around us. Ultimately, push us all towards your spirit, towards your presence, because when we're in presence, in your presence, you will begin to fill our life systems with health because you actually offer what the culture thinks they offer, which is wholeness, peace, truth, and love. So invade our spirits and give us love and peace and wholeness this week as we begin to look into the 90% of ourselves that we only allow to exist under the surface. Help us to no longer ignore, suppress, or repress things of ourselves that we need to deal with. Help us to be courageous as we gently confront ourselves. Help us to not dodge ourselves any longer because we know that you have gone before us that you have dealt with the same abysses that we see ourselves in now. You know them intimately, and you know intimately how to deal with us, how to work us towards more of your image. 
Help us to put off our old selves and instead to put on the new man, which is being reformed and renewed in the knowledge and the image of you. Jesus, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.